we have been looking at Ephesians chapter 6. And my intention has been able to continue taking us through a, a, a process of dealing with uh, spiritual warfare, <clears throat> putting on the armor of God. And I keep walking that direction, and, the, and today the Holy Spirit, while we're springboarding from there, the Holy Spirit's taking us in a completely different direction, which is, I, I, I had to ask the Lord, why? Why are we doing this? But I feel like it's intentional, so let, we're going to go there. Let's start off with Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read verses 10 through 12, and please excuse me, I don't have slides prepared today, so we won't be looking at the, uh, any projection. I do not have those prepared. We've had a busy week. <laughs> a busy day yesterday, and uh, so I'm going to ask you, if you would, to break out your hard copy, if you have it, and if you have the soft copy on your telephone, please don't celebrate too much if Candy Crush, you get a win, and uh, um, turn to your Bible in your, in your, in your telephone if you have it, um, but turn to Ephesians chapter 6, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, and we'll go back to this, verse 10, a final word. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all the armor, uh, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the enemy. We're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And I don't want us to, to feel like we're, we're, we're ending on a, on a negative note there, talking about all the evil out there and all the things that are opposing us, but we're going to spend some time in a different direction. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to feel like a curveball, but <clears throat> we're going to go there. Um, one part of this that really stood out to me when we were preparing for today, and that has to do with verse 11. We've talked last week and the last couple of weeks about being strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The scripture talks about putting on the armor of God. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. It talks about standing firm. But the thing that we really want to focus today on, it says against all the strategies of the devil. Against all the strategies of the devil. Has any, any of you ever heard of the, the uh, um, oh my goodness, what is that, that book? Um, the Art of War. Anybody heard of the book, The Art of War? A few people have. Sun Tzu, right? Probably not pronounced correctly, but something like that, Sun Tzu. But he was a, a famous um, Chinese general. I've got the book in my room. A, a lot of businesses, when they're training their executives in how to strategize um, uh, for business in this world, will have their executives read the book, The Art of War, because he talks about defensive strategies, offensive strategies, how to, to plan to attack the enemy. And it's a masterful book. It's almost written like poetry in some kind of ways. But, but it's a, a, a masterful book about the strategies of warfare. And it's recognized around the world. Our, our generals, our military leaders, they're required to read the book, The Art of War by Sun Tzu, which was written centuries ago. But those principles still stand. And I just want to tell you that, that based on this scripture, verse 11, it says that our enemy who comes against us has strategies that are designed for our destruction. There are strategies to the enemy's attack on us. There are strategies to how the enemy lays siege and, and protects the territories that he's established here in the earth. And we need to be wise as believers to the working of the enemy. 
Because believe it or not, there's things that we, we fall right into and walk right into that the enemy is prepared and those things are so familiar to us that we're, we're oblivious because it just seems normal. But we need to become alert and aware to the strategies of the enemy. There's things that have been around for so long that we're not even familiar. Uh, we, we, we think that they're normal and they're not normal. So today I titled my sermon, Destroying Ancient Strongholds. Destroying Ancient Strongholds. And we're going to look at an area of this and hopefully the Holy Spirit will be able to take it and apply it over other areas of our life so that we can be able to be effective in waging war against the enemy. And we're going to start off with a passage that seems very unlikely, but I want us to go there, and that's from the, the story of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. So would, would, would you turn with me there? John chapter 4. We are very quiet today. <clears throat> Amen. Amen. This is an interesting passage, and uh, um, I've enjoyed this week going back and studying this passage. I studied a whole bunch of things about this, and, and I know that though I enjoyed the depth of my study, I would probably wear you out if I tried to drag you every, through everything that I saw. So my intention here is not to just give you a whole lot of details, but give you some things that we can apply to life, okay? One of the things that I, I want us to see is Jesus was having a fruitful ministry. Matter of fact, his disciples were, were baptizing and people were coming to the meetings that they were having, the gatherings that they were having, whether they were in the hillside or in the synagogue. And it says, starts out here, it says, Jesus knew that, that Pharisees had heard about his baptizing. You know what Jesus decided to do? He's going to go somewhere else. So he left the area and he returned to Galilee. The Pharisees, so it was hitting the ra radar of those religious leaders that would, would stir up conflict against Jesus at the time. So his response to that, and I'm sure it was intentional in, in more ways than just I may be surmising right here, but the reality is that Jesus said, look, we need, we're going to go over to Galilee. And so they start out on a journey, and Jesus chose to go through Samaria. Now, the significant thing about that, if you think of, of Israel, basically in the southern part you have Judah, or Gal or, and, and then you've got the area of Samaria, and then ab up above that to the north, you've got the Galilean area, and I'm not trying to do the whole atlas, I'm just kind of briefly draw it out, so basically those three areas, but if you, if a Jew, a strict Jewish person was traveling from Judea in the south and wanting to go up to, to uh, uh, Galilee in the north, they had such animosity to the Samaritan people, that they would literally take an extended journey out and around Samaria to avoid even walking through the territory of the Samaritans. Matter of fact, they despised the Samaritans so much that they would actually shake the dust off of their feet. They'd do the same thing for a Gentile territory, where they would walk through a Gentile territory and they'd get ready to enter back into Israel. They would shake the dust off their feet and shake their garments because they didn't want any dust or any dirt from those separated lands to even enter into Israel because they considered it unclean. They didn't want to carry any of that uncleanliness with them. But Jesus, in his journey, chose to go right through Samaria. Let me paint the picture a little bit more. The Jews considered the Samaritans so unclean. There was a time under Saul and under David and under Solomon where, that where Israel was a united nation, kings, but with a united nation. After that, after Solomon, 
the, because of sin and division that came into Israel, the kingdoms were separated, and you had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And uh, during that time, idolatry uh, went rampant at many times, and sometimes there were kings that redeemed the nation and brought them back the way they ought to be. And then you would see them turn right around, and they, they, they sinned like their fathers. They fell back into sin all over again, and it went on and on and on. And then finally, there's scriptures in the Old Testament, and there's fascinating passages back there. But you find that God finally said enough, and he allowed uh, those kingdoms to be carried off into exile. During the time when the northern kingdom went into exile, the best of the land was carried off, the best most promising, most productive, the wealthiest people of that northern kingdom were carried off into captivity, and they left what they considered the low life of that northern kingdom in that land. So there were people that, that they didn't want to be associated with. They left people that were the outcasts there in the land. Even those other nations didn't want them. So they just left them there, and during that time, there were peoples from other nations that came in and populated that area of the northern kingdom, Samaria. And they, so there was a mixing of the bloodlines between what had been people of Jewish descent and people of other nations. Along with it, there was a mixing of religions and things like that. There was, there was all kinds of idolatry that went on in there. And, and now we are literally centuries down the road from there, and we come to this place where Samaria, in the time when the nation was, was reestablished, when the Jewish people came back and repopulated the land, they considered that area of Samaria tainted. They despised those people because they, they were a mixed blood. They didn't, the, the southern kingdom and, and even the, the people of Galilee, the Jewish people, did not consider the Samaritans to be Jewish at all, even though they had a trace of that Jewish blood in them. Even though, did you know that the Samaritan people, they do and they still retain, even today, there are Samaritans who follow the, the, the law they have the first five books, the first five books of, of uh, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and they still follow the first five books. They do not embrace the rest of the Old Testament. They only follow God based on the first five books. As a matter of fact, because of the fact that the southern Jewish kingdom would not embrace the northern Jewish kingdom, the, the northern Jewish kingdom established their own temple and had their own place of, of worship. And so it was a divided kingdom. They weren't worshiping together, and the Jewish people considered the Samaritans just trash. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. If a Samaritan's shadow passed over a Jewish person's food, the Jewish people would throw the food out. That's how low they were. There even is accounts of, of prayers that were prayed for the Samaritan people. The, the Jewish people considered them so... Um, so accursed and so afflicted of spirit that they would pray prayers. They, number one, they did not think that the, that the Samaritans were, had any hope of a resurrection. And there was prayers that were prayed that actually said, Lord, just go ahead and annihilate them for their own good. They th considered it to be almost because they were so accursed in the eyes of the Jewish people, they considered it to be a blessing for the Samaritans to just be wiped out. Just go ahead and annihilate them for their own good. No hope for redemption, no hope for restoration, not even looking for it. They were just worthless, useless. Yet Jesus chose to walk through Samaria. He went there. 
Let's look at verse 4. Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way. It's interesting to me. It says he had to go because most Jewish people would have walked around. But Jesus was moved. He had to go. He was driven to go. It was purposeful. And now, Ralph, I know on Sunday night at the home group, he was talking about Jesus' humanity, that while Jesus was God, he was also very man. This next part is very interesting when you look at that. It said, I'm going to jump down to verse 6, said, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, look what it says, tired from the long walk. You ever thought of Jesus being tired? <laughs> Jesus tired from the long walk. It says, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. So here Jesus in his physical body, you know, I'm just going to tell you this, it does not diminish Jesus in any way with regards to who he is as the Son of God, that his physical body got tired. Jesus was even mindful of, of his disciples, and we've preached about this, but he saw the disciples been out doing ministries. Look, let's, let's get away and get some rest. Sometimes in ministry and in life, we feel how it's, like it's not spiritual to uh, rest. But God made us spirit, soul, and body, and our body has needs that have to be attend attended to. We have to rest. We need to eat, and we need to eat well, and we need physical exercise. If we're falling down in how we take care of our body, it limits how we can serve the Lord because physically we're not able to keep up. If you are the most athletic person in the world and you get out there and you exercise and you exercise and you never take time to rest your body, your body will give up on you at some point. It will shut down, and it will say, sit down and be still for a while. We've got to take care of our physical body. Jesus was not separated from that. It says that he was tired, and he was wearied from the journey. And there about noontime, he's sitting at Jacob's well. The, the, the fact that he was there at noontime is significant, believe it or not, because what we find is that the upstanding people generally would go in the morning to go get water. You'd go start out your day, and what would you do? You'd go out there. It was the busiest time. There was a lot of people going out there during that time, and, and people would go out there and get the water. But a lot of times the people that, that felt outcast or separated from society, that they would wait and go around noontime. They didn't feel like they were accepted by everybody else, so they would, they would wait until noontime. It says that, that Jesus was there around noontime, and soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. He was alone at that time because the disciples had gone into the village to buy, buy food. And the woman was surprised, she said, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. We already talked about that. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And I just want to mention something right here because this is pertinent, really pertinent for the day. Her immediate response when she had an interaction with the Almighty was focused on the differences. She had an encounter with Jesus sitting here at the well, and immediately her ingrained, trained response was, what is it that separates us? Why are you talking to me? What is it that, you know, she was already identifying and sticking to? And you can see there's some, an animosity in her where she was wanting to, to attack that and point out the fact there was a weightiness of offense that she is living with, okay? There's an offense that she's living with that's been ingrained in her 
through her lifetime and through generations that have gone beyond her, she anticipated that the rejection to come from Jesus. It was an old stronghold. It was an old stronghold, something that had been there for so long. And I'm going to tell you, the enemy uses anything he can to divide and conquer. I want us to go, um, let me see. Yeah, we're at a good place. Let's go, let's go. Can we turn to Genesis chapter 11 real quick? I want this, this is, this is very important for us. Genesis chapter 11. This is immediately the time period that's after the flood. There's, there is a genealogy that's given. There's some things that are talked about. And then all of a sudden it jumps into this story of Babel. And uh, there's a reason for it. Verse 1 of, of chapter 11 says, At one time all the people of the earth spoke the same language and used the same words. Can you imagine that? I'm going to restate this, that there have been times in the history of the earth that everybody that was alive on the earth had knowledge of the, the Almighty God and the Creator. We know at least two times. This is, this is just past the second. But we find out that at creation, Adam and Eve were walking in the garden. They knew God. They knew God. Everybody alive on the earth, there's only two of them, but everybody alive on the earth had a relationship with God. God would come and walk with them in the still of the evening. But yet sin entered in. And with that sin came a breaking in relationship. And you find it doesn't take very long moving through the scripture after they were kicked out of the garden that all of a sudden you got, was it Lemuel who is relishing in the fact that he had slain a man just because they had had an attitude with one another and he was bragging about it to his wives. Sin crept in when there was an absence of the relationship with God. Then when the earth became so corrupt that God could stand it no longer and said that God repented for the fact that he'd even made man, it had become so evil that God had to intervene. If there was ever going to be a hope for salvation for mankind, it had become so corrupt that God had to intervene, and he intervened in a drastic way, and he sent the flood. He found one faithful one, Noah, and so he preserved Noah and his wife and, their, and his sons and families. But they were the only family left in the earth. And they had that dramatic deliverance with the ark. And has anybody been up there to see that ark that's been recre recreated? Anybody been up there? Nobody here. We need to have a field trip. We need to get some folks together and go up there and see that ark. I would love to go see the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. as well. Anybody been there? All right. Field trip. <laughs> we need to work on that. Anybody got any ideas or plans? We, maybe we can get some things going on. Anyhow, we might be on a sidetrack, though. Okay, the ark. Back to the ark. God delivered mankind and provided a way for salvation by preserving a family that had a relationship with God. The sad thing, Heidi, is the fact that it doesn't take very long after they get off the ark, after the rainbow is displayed as a promise of the relationship and the fact that God would never destroy the earth in that way again. After God put the rainbow up in the sky, it doesn't take very long, and all of a sudden they're back right in sin. Sinfulness has crept back in. Why? There hasn't been any redemption. There, man is still infected with that inheritance of sin. The bloodline is still there. Jesus has not been, been crucified. He has not given his life to redeem man back to relationship. So that fatal flaw is still evident. 
it's, it's there. It's an ancient stronghold in the life of man. But we come here to Babel, and again, it hasn't been long since the flood, and it, said, it talks about how some of the nations spread out in different ways. But it says, at that time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. I can't even hardly imagine that. But I remember being in high school just a few years ago, and there was a man attempt that had been sponsored by, just a few years ago, a man attempt. I even saw Caleb Houston smiling by that. Um, <laughs> That, that there, was, um, uh, there was an attempt sponsored, I think, by the UN, and they sponsored a language that would become the one world language. It was called, anybody heard of it? I guess it didn't work. The one world language was called Esperanto. They tried to take several languages and blend them together and come up with one language that could be spoken all around the world as a trade language. And their intent was that all the peoples of the world would be educated in this language, Esperanto. We had someone come to our school who was going, he had been traveling around the world and he was promoting Esperanto for the UN and it never caught on. It never caught on. So anyhow, they, they were trying to create a, a one language. And it says here in verse 2, as the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of, of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this, bricks, in this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. And they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches to the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. So they intentionally were trying to create something to bring glory to man, a tower that would reach to the sky. They said they were going to reach to the heavens themselves. And if you go back and look at some of the other translations, it looks like they were trying to deify man. They were trying to get to God by their own means. And some people think that this type of tower could be what is still found today over in the area. But a, a ziggurat, have you ever heard of a ziggurat? A type of building is like a, a stepped building that goes high to the sky. <coughs> they think it could have been something like that. So it was man trying to, to create his own type of deity to exalt himself. It says, but the Lord came down, verse 5, and looked at the building and the tower the people were building. So God had his eyes on what was going on. And God says this, this, this verse 6 is very unique. It says, look, he said, the people are united and they're speaking the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to, to understand each other. So what God did, God seeing that men were working together and they were unified, but they were unified to a, an, an evil end, to an evil end, um, even to the point that they were, they were really turning away from God. They were doing their own thing their own way. They were rejecting God, and God says, look, we can fix this. Let's just bring confusion to them. by We're going to confuse their language. We will divide them by putting other languages. And all of a sudden, you can go on through the passage, you find that people are trying to communicate with other another, but this person speaking one language and that person speaking another language, and they couldn't even get the work done before long because of the fact they had different languages. They were divided and split up, and they ended up leaving each other because they were con it was confusing, they didn't understand each other. And, but God did it. God caught, spoke to it, and God allowed that confusion to come in. God caused there to be confusion so that they could not be unified. But can we take this and shift this just a little bit? 
And let's say now as a redeemed mankind, isn't it appropriate for a redeemed mankind? I'm talking about the body of Christ. I'm talking about us. That now, that if we could speak one language and be of one mind and be unified together, what if God were able to say of us, because they're unified and they're standing together and they've got the same heart, the same mind, they're endeavoring to do the same thing, as long as, long as that same thing was in agreement with what God wanted to do, that it would be appropriate for, for us to be able to say, there's nothing that they can't do because we've got the one. We've been unified together in Christ. So what was a part of a curse from the Old Testament at Babylon should now be removed. The we who are the body of Christ should be able to walk in the newness that comes through the Holy Spirit and is working in our lives. It should not be said of the body of Christ in this day and age that they cannot accomplish the things that are set before them, that they're speaking a different language and the confusion is coming to their ranks, but yet we still find a church divided. We still find people that are speaking a different language. And there, I'm just going to venture out there and tell you this. When the Lord was dealing with me and put this passage on my mind, the Lord was saying there's still an ancient stronghold that has taken hold of the body of Christ. We're still walking in an old jurisdiction. Yes, God allowed that separation and that division. God put it in place. But the reality is that outside of the curse, we shouldn't be walking in that kind of confusion anymore. We should, anything that God puts in our hearts to do, there should not be a question in our mind whether or not we can accomplish it. Because if we're walking unified with him, we should be walking unified with the brother or sister that's walking beside us unified with him. We should be able to speak the same language and be able to accomplish the purposes of God together. But yet we're still divided. Why? I believe there's still ancient strongholds that we are not discerning of. Here's the reality. We are so used as a people in the earth to being divided by different languages or different opinions or by different associations or by different affections, that we're more used to being divided than we are being unified. Look at the Olympics. I don't know. If <laughs> we have the Olympics. This is a unifying thing. I know it was based on old you know, Greek customs and things like that where all the different city-states were supposed to come together and they were going to have the games together. It was one unifying time where they got together around the games. But I just have a hard time not going and looking at the medal count. Who's got most medals? You know, are we winning or losing? Well, they were great sportsmen. Yeah, but who's got the most medals? You know, how people do that. There's such a competitive thing built up. Well, they're from over there and we're from over here. And, you know, our, our, we're divided by nations. You know, there's certain things that are, it, it seems so normal, our land mass separates us. We're different from those people. They've got a different language. Well, actually, I pull for this sports team, and they pull for that sports team, so we're separated. I go to this high school, and they go to that high school. I went to this college, and when we compete against their college, I'm for this team and that team. And it's amazing how many ways we can parse and divide to separate and define ourselves, and we end up 
defining ourselves that we're not like this person and we're not like that person and we disagree on this thing, that we end up, <laughs> we end up separating ourselves and creating these little boxes that we feel comfortable in, even though it's not a good place to be. I just, I just want to say that. We, we need to be of a different mindset. Okay, it's okay to have fun, all right? Sports teams should be fun. But when people get out there competing, playing football or basketball, and they're throwing punches, I'm talking about in the stands. The fans are out there. I remember watching, a, a, seeing a, a, a soccer match. It was over in England, and they know how to get rowdy over there. They were having brawls, and there's riots and things like that. I've heard of stadium sections collapsing because there's this mass rush of people, and there's so much weight that ends up in one part of the stadium that the stadium collapses and people die and everything. But it's all over the division among one team versus another. They're separated and divided. But there's still a lingering thing in the body of Christ. Well, what church do you go to? Well, I'm a Christian. Yes, I know, but what kind of church? What, what church are you from? What do you think about? What do you think about this doctrine or that doctrine? But it's not just a discussion. It's not just an open discussion. It is an intent to categorize. Are you with me or are you outside of me? But see, the whole thing, it's an, it's an old stronghold. That division is an old stronghold. Why aren't we looking for where we agree? Why aren't we embracing one another in, in this walk of love? Why aren't we growing together in grace and appreciating? I saw someone the other day masterfully uh, it's on YouTube, uh, but he was a, a public speaker, and he had a young lady come up the stage, and apparently, I didn't see this part, but apparently he had invited her to insult him. So anything that he tried to say to her, she just, oh boy, she was good. Snap, she cut him down. She was cutting down the way he dressed. She cut down the way he spoke. She just cut him down, cut him down, cut him down, cut him down. And, I mean, she, he said, he stopped her. He said, you're good. <laughs> He said, now let me show you something else. And so this young lady, he said, I want you to do it again. He said, but every time that she would say something, she said, he said, you know, you're probably right, but I'm working on that. You know, he, he, and then she made this cutting response. He, he, said, he said, you know, you've got great hair. You know, <laughs> and it kind of threw her a little bit. And so she tried to make another cut. And he said, I really appreciate, you know, and just I appreciate your opinion of that. He said, that's something I probably need to look into. But every time she tried to make a cutting remark, he deflected it in some way. It even turned around complimented to where she just found herself dumbfounded and didn't know what to say because he completely turned her negative into a positive. He was masterful in it to where this sharp tongued young lady just could not go any further she started blushing i think and just kind of got stuck she didn't know what to say because she could not continue to assault him with words when he was being nice to her it didn't fit it just made her look bad really and i thought about scripture and how god wants you know we're so quick to take up arms against people when really they're ensnared by principalities and powers there's thinking that's going on in their mind that may have been ingrained in them for years and years and years. You know, Africa is such a rich continent. There's so much wealth with mineral wealth, with the richness of the land, and more importantly, with the people. But one of the things that we've wrestled with and people for years have wrestled with is that in the midst of all of that potential 
Africa is so divided when it comes to the old ingrained strongholds of tribalism. You can have people who've lived beside each other for 25 years and across the country there can be a squabble politically or in some other kind of way, a conflict, and then you've got these neighbors who've been friends for 25 years taking machetes to one another because it's one tribe against another. Even though their relationship has been going on for 25 years. It's horrendous. It's brutal. And it's, it's a fire. It's like having a gas burning on the stove without a pilot light, and then all of a sudden somebody puts a trigger to it. Just, it's explosive. But it's an old stronghold. And I'm not getting to the meat of this the way I want to, to get to it, but I'm, I'm just going to make the statement. Even in the body of Christ, there is too in deeply entrenched the division instead of the unification of the body of Christ. We're dealing with a Samaritan woman here. Deep entrenched animosity, justifiable offense, justifiable sense of rejection and feeling wronged. Somebody did something against me. Your people against my people. It's justifiable. But somebody has to be willing to step across that divide. Someone has to be willing to step beyond the offense. And if Jesus was willing to do it, why shouldn't we? You know, let me just, let me just paint the picture about this woman, okay? And I realized I don't have the time, and I won't, I'm not going to take the time to go in and dig in. Ugh, I've done it again. To all the things that could separate, number one, Jesus was a Jew. She's a Samaritan. Right there, from a historical perspective, there should be division. Beyond that, here is Jesus, a rabbi sitting at a well, rabbis did not talk to women. They didn't talk to women. Here, a Samaritan woman comes to the well, and Jesus speaks to her. Jesus asks her for her drink. She, he's even willing to receive something from her hand that she's touched. And she doesn't even know, why, why are you talking to me? Beyond that, when Jesus gives her the opportunity to say, look, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd be asking me for something to drink. And I'd love to get into it, but I don't have a lot of time to get into it. And it's really kind of leaning onto another sermon anyhow. But he said, that water that I give, it is an ever-bubbling, fresh stream of living water. Once you've got that living water, you'll never thirst again. And she says, I want that water. I want that water. Will you give that water to me? And I just want to tell you that, that I, I have to say it, that bubbling stream is tied directly into a fresh relationship with the Holy Spirit. We've got to get an everyday drink of water, everyday drink of water. My mom spoke of it very clearly yesterday morning in a devotion, and she said, look, it doesn't matter. You, you said you can't just live on what you received yesterday or last Sunday. You've got to have a today word from the Lord because you may think that you've got your day covered, but you don't know what you're going to face during the day. It may be that something that God gives you that morning, even if you only have time to read a scripture, but spend some time with the Lord because God may draw from that very thing. You need to not only go out with your lamp burning, you need to have a reservoir. Be ready for whatever that day may hold. Tap in, tap in, and have a reservoir of oil ready so that your lamp doesn't burn out during the day. 
But Jesus says there's a living water. And she says, I want that living water. She made a declaration. She wanted whatever that was that Jesus had to give. What was Jesus' response? Go bring your husband. Go bring your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you spoke right because you've had five husbands, but the one that you're with is not your husband. I just want to, I just want to, I want to dig in just a little bit because I spent a lot of time right here this week in this part. We are so quick to label people. We're so quick to label people and say this person may have had this difficulty in their life and for somehow we want to discount or discredit or something like that. There are people who have, been, have struggled with, with uh, addictions. There are st- people that struggle with, with uh, I don't even want to, I'm not even going to take the time to try to enumerate all these things. But let me just tell you, this lady who went at the middle of the day because she felt the condemnation of the people that would have been around her, she didn't feel like she could go at the morning of the day when the outstanding people of the day. She had the label of having been married five times, and now the person that she was with wasn't even her husband. But I just want to say this, because I went in and studied, because I had the question. I went in and studied, did you know what the consequence was in Israel? I mean, what would cause someone, what was the one reason why people could be divorced? Adultery, right? And what happened when someone was convicted of adultery? They were stoned. So how could a a lady weather five divorces if she had been the one at fault for for adultery? So there had to have been other circumstances that were affecting the fact that she had lost five husbands. We automatically assume the fact that she's had five husbands to be that somehow she's been an offense, that there's been divorce. We don't know the fact that it could have been that her husbands died. It could have been there was some other kind of blemish or something like that. There were some rabbis, there were two different schools that Jesus was dealing with when he even talked about divorce. Two different schools. One said that it had to be adultery. Some said that you could put your wife away. One, one school said you can put your wife away if you don't like the way she cooks. Look, I'm done. I don't, want, I don't want to have you. So we assume that the fact that she, again, let's go back just a little bit. There are a lot of traditions that went on in Israel, a lot of things going on. In the Samaritan camp, they stuck firmly to the Torah. They stuck to the first five books. So if it was done the way their, their focus was to do it, even though they were considered unclean by the rest of the Jews. Their, their, their mindset was to do it the way it was done in the first five books. So if there was ever a place where judgment would come swift and hard on adultery, it would have been there. So that only leaves the other options that somehow she was being put away for other reasons other than adultery. But we, I, have always labeled her as somehow being unclean in that way. And the assumption is that she's tainted you know, but she is living in a relationship with someone that she's not married to. I don't know what the circumstances of her life was, but why is it that we're so quick to condemn her? Why is she labeled so quickly and therefore put as an outcast in the society? 
you know, if you've got questions about this, go study it out. Go look it out. Go dig, 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 and find out. But it made me think, how quickly do we label someone and say, look, you're not like me, or you're not, you've got this kind of thing going on in your life that makes you unacceptable. And I hope that that's not resonant in us. I hope that's not an old stronghold in us. I hope that we're not, as a congregation, after all the teaching we've heard, that kind of people. But the reality is we could, we could if we look just a little bit, we could find people out here in this world that we probably wouldn't be comfortable embracing. What if we had a delegation of North Korean cheerleaders come in here? <laughs> Y'all seen the Olympics, right? What if all of a sudden we had North Koreans that came that wanted to be here? What if, you know, pick a nation. We could, we could find people out there that we'd probably say, I don't want to have anything to do with those people. I don't want to go there. I don't want to have anything to do with them. For some people, it may be someone of another sports team. There's some people that are that hard. There are. I mean, they don't want to, I don't want to, you know, you say you like that team, you're cut off. I don't want to have anything to do with it. But there, okay, I don't have the time to dig into this, but I just want to say we easily divide more than we embrace. But that's an old stronghold, and we who are living under the mantle of the kingdom of God should not be walking that way. And so we, I want us to be, develop a sensitivity to the Spirit, and I wish I had time to go further, but I'm not, and I'm not going to take it. We have got to develop a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. We're walking out from the strongholds that have bound our minds up and have kept us in bondage to the ways of, of the enemy, and we're walking under the curse. We've got to get free from that and begin walking with the mindset of the Spirit of God. Look, the kingdom of God is not bound by nationality. It's not bound by language. It's not bound by color. It's not bound by how much somebody makes or how much they don't make. It's not bound by the way they look, the color of their eyes. It's not bound by those type of things. The kingdom of God is expansive. It is above and beyond. And if our kingdom of God is not willing to embrace other people of, of, that are different from us, then it's not the kingdom of God at all. And we better break down that stronghold. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And no, I can't share everything that's here, and I won't. But there's a new reality that's a part of our kingdom that we're a part of. Ephesians chapter 4. And it's characterized by the redeemed being brought together through redemption. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we walk as one. Look at verse 11, chapter 4. And again, we know about this, but there's been gifts given. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we come to such unity in our faith, unity, such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son 
that we be mature we will be mature in the Lord measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So as the body is maturing, we're going to come to such a unity in the, in our faith and the knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord. We're not mature in the Lord until we're seeing both the knowledge of the son building it, building in us that we're living it out, and also that we're in unity in the faith. If we're easily divided from our brethren, we're not walking in maturity. If we're easily divided from our brethren, we're not manifesting the character and the nature of Christ. Look at verses, I want to go back to verses 2, 3, and 4 in the same verse, in the same chapter. Paul, instructing the Ephesians, says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with one another, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves unified in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Making every effort to keep yourselves unified in the Spirit, binding yourselves together in peace. Why bind yourselves together? Because there are attempts to tear you apart. Maintaining unity means that you purpose, you endeavor to bind yourself together. There are, there are attempts of the enemy to divide and to separate, to make you feel offense, to make you feel like somebody's done wrong, to make you feel like somebody's different than you, to make you think that, that they think they're better than you or that you feel like you're less than or perhaps you think you're better than them and that they're less than. But there's attempts by the enemy, and it's about that old division stronghold. It's still trying to work in the church, but we have got to pursue unity. We've got to choose to bind ourselves to people sometimes that are offensive to us. We think they're offensive. They may not even be trying to do, but sometimes the old man may stir up inside of them. But we've got to bind ourselves together to them in the unity that comes through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of holiness and the Spirit of unity. Verse 4, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one body and one spirit. We've got to preserve unity because here's what happens. And I've seen it time and time again. I've seen it over and over again. God, God instructed me and revealed this when, when just in my early 20s. Every time God begins to move in a supernatural way, every time God tries to move in a supernatural way, the enemy is quick to try to step in and either bring confusion. Sometimes the enemy will step in with something that is a mimic of the real, and that mimic is just religious. But his intent is to divide. So where he can't, Stop what God's doing. He will attempt to divide people off. He'll separate. Many years ago when I was first here, I was asked to go and speak down at Barton College to one of the religion classes down there. And they spoke. They, one of the lingering questions that they asked, Ben, one of the lingering questions that, that stayed with me was, um, and I've, I've shared this before, but but there is a, a terminology in, in, in church growth teachings when they're studying the statistics of church growth. One of those things is the homogeneous unit principle. And they'll say 
that what draws people together, y'all can just have that word for free, <laughs> homogeneous universe principle. That means that people are drawn together about what they share. So the tendency is, it's in some ways, there's some validity to it. In some ways, I think it's an excuse. They would use that principle to say that you're going to have white churches because white people want to be together. You're going to have black churches because black churches want to be together. Okay? That doesn't reflect the body of Christ to me. Why is Sunday morning the most divided day in our nation? Schools aren't divided. Businesses aren't divided. Sunday's divided. Why? Does that reflect on the unity of the body of Christ? Okay. Homogeneous unity principle says that you're probably going to have the elites of the town want to go to the church downtown. And then you're going to have these people over here, but there's a core that will draw people together. The question that was posed to me at Living Faith, because at that time, Living Faith was very unique in the town in that we had people of different races coming together. We were, we were getting together and, and, and growing as a church and things like that. And they were saying, why is it that Living Faith is able to draw people together and they all worship together like that? And, um, you know, I was young. I didn't have, <laughs> I wasn't schooled in that. But I feel like the, the Lord dropped something in my spirit. And I said, it's not the differences that characterize our church, but the thing that we share. And I said, and I believe that really what draws us together at Living Faith is the fact that we share a fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that not only works in us, but it, it knits us together and causes us to want to be together and to want to share time together. And our differences are not what stand out. It's the thing that we share that stands out. And it should be that way in the body of Christ. My mindset is this, that if we learn to work together and focus on what we share, that exactly what God intended to, to cause separation and to stop among the sinful back there in Babel, God will establish in his body of Christ that he will give us a purpose and a plan, give us a direction on what he wants to do, and because we're one together in the Spirit, that it will be able to be said that there's nothing that they won't be able to do. We'll be able to do anything that God gives us to do. Number one, because it's his purpose, his plan. And if we're unified together in him and we don't babble about things that we shouldn't be babbling about and we don't talk about people when we shouldn't be talking about them and we pray for them instead of heaping accusations and talk about things that are offensive and don't allow the enemy to get in and divide us up, that we will be able to do what God's purposed and planned for us as a body of believers as we ignite our community for the kingdom of God, as we impact hearts and lives so that they have encounters with God through us that change their lives for an eternity. But we have to guard ourselves to be one and not allow the enemy to step in and cause us to be divided. So we need to quickly make the determination which kingdom are we a part of. Are we a part of that one everlasting kingdom or are we looking to be grouped together in little groups based on language or color or economic status or education or 
You know, there's places in this nation where you can't even wear certain colors through the streets of that that area because they associate with you a as a, as a with a gang because you're wearing a color. Can't even wear a certain color. But may he make us one as he is one. Amen? I'm going to stop right there. Would you stand with me? And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Now, here's something that I want us to do. And I want us to, when it comes time for us to pray right here, I don't want this to be the time to think about where we're going to eat. I want us to internalize what we have spoken. So would you take just a moment? And while we've talked about unity, letting go of offense, being one and binding ourselves together, if you recognize that in your home or in your relationships, in your family, in your work, in your church, if there is brokenness, and if the enemy is endeavoring to divide, and would you just take that to the Lord? Understanding that your commission comes from above, that you are a part of God's kingdom, and that it's an everlasting kingdom. And God wants us to walk together. So those petty things, and I'm calling them petty, even though they may be big to you right now, if they're not eternal, then they're petty because they're passing. But would you just internalize and ask God to help you overcome whatever ancient stronghold might be trying to take root in your life that would cause you to be limited in what you can accomplish for the kingdom of God? Father, we all just confess in our own hearts right now. Lord, there's not one of us that's gotten it right. There's not one of us who have let our mouth not one of us that has gone and been innocent of not babbling when we should have just been quiet and prayed for someone. And what we did, we took our offense and we passed it around like we were passing out buttered bread so that we have affected other people with our own bitterness. God, we cannot be one without your Spirit. We cannot be one academically. We can't just say it and it become a reality. Lord, it takes the work of your Holy Spirit. So would you work in our hearts and our lives? Lord, we don't want to just agree because we come together on Sunday morning and this is our place that we go. God, I want there to be a dynamic, supernatural work of your Holy Spirit inside of us so that we leap with the thought of being able to get together. And we leap on the inside with the anticipation of what you're going to accomplish through us. And God, that we're living with an anticipation that there's a supernatural thing getting ready to go on because we sense the move of your Holy Spirit, Lord, and our lamps are full, your God, and our little pots that we carry around of us with oil is full, and we just know that the opportunity is going to come sometime today to be able to pour out and be a blessing to somebody. So would you do that super, supernatural work inside of us? And Father, change our mindset when we're so used to seeing other people and dividing ourselves. Lord, if you could go to that well and receive from this woman who was outcast in her society. But Lord, you purposed to be there. And you realized that you were there on assignment, your God, and that you ministered to her and you gave life to her. And she was able to take and share that bubbly water with the people and, and streams of people came. You spent two days there 
ministering to your God. God, we can live each day with the same anticipation that we will have the opportunity to share life with people we come in contact with. So be it in Jesus' name. Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit for works of service. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.